Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Hey, this morning, you can go ahead and start turning to Matthew chapter 7. Get your Bible warmed up for us. We're going to venture into something this summer. We always... try to take the summer months to do something that the Lord's maybe given us a shortened season to focus in on something in particular during those summer months. We're going to do something that we've we've not done as a study like this before. We've maybe done it as a class setting from time to time, but we're going to study through our statement of faith, right? So whether you know it or not, as a matter of fact, if you're a part of, maybe organizations have statements of faith, but if you're a part of a church, Churches have statements of faith. It is a concise unpacking with clarity of the theology that's featured in a church setting by a community of people. So this is the things that we believe, if you will. And and we're going to study through, actually, the the family of churches we're a part of, Sovereign Grace Churches, has has, uh, kind of retooled and gone back and re-looked at our statement of faith as a group of churches over the last two years, really. And it's a great process working with the theology team in our movement and, and with pastors who've had input from all around the country. But this is available to you to pick up. There are copies available in the Welcome Center on the way out in the bookstore as well. I think we've got printed copies like this little booklet for four bucks. But they're in, on the app as well. There's a PDF version that's free on the app, also in the, the website that you'll find this as well. But... If you've studied church history at all, you have come across statements of faith. Sometimes they're called creeds. Sometimes they're called confessions. But if you've, if you've not paid attention to history, there's usually a reason why history gives birth to creeds and confessions. It's because the, the church is moving along, believing and practicing some things, and some other ideas begin to infiltrate what the church is building. So different ideas come along, different things get emphasized, doctrine begins to get tweaked or neglected or changes, and then somewhere the church recognizes we need to clarify what we understand the Bible to be teaching in these major categories of belief. So there are moments in church history where that's happened numerous times, right? I think we had a quick little slide here just so you can have a a look at. These are the kinds of categories that are in our statement of faith. Not every church has exactly the same categories, but uh, there's 13 categories like the scriptures is a category. And there's going to be some subheadings underneath that. The triune God, what do we believe about God and the nature of God and what he's like? God's sovereign purposes, what do we believe about that? creation, providence, and man. What do we believe about those things? So there's 13 of those major groups. And if you get a copy of this, and we hope every one of you will get a copy of this. Uh, There's 13 major sections. We'll probably teach through about half of them this summer. Not to stay in this series for too long. We'll pick the other half up another time. I don't know, you know, if in church history there have been reasons to write creeds and confessions and statements of faith, uh, I don't know if there's been a greater moment of need than the one that we're traveling through right now. I mean, so many ideas are shifting and changing all around us, right? And, and, and this is what's really concerning because a lot of times these statements have been written out of a group of, of religious people who their ideas were changing. You know, Martin Luther nails his thesis to the door of the church 
because he sees drift in the church and different ideas amongst the religious people. He didn't nail this to the town uh, hall and want reform in city government. This was for the church to have a different conversation about faith. Well, today, our culture is so influential in our lives. That's what, what you're watching happen is once culture begins to define what a, an issue is about, that definition is bleeding its way into the church to where people now begin to say, well, if that's true, then God can't be like what I was always taught. And my belief may not have been right because our culture feels a certain way about issues and about what's right and what's wrong and, and what stance to take on certain things that are in our culture. And so when you take a stance, it sounds like you're not loving and supporting. Well, it must be my definition of love that was wrong. Where'd you get that from? I got it from the church, that unloving group of people in the church, right? So this is the pushback that the culture is creating on us. And it calls for us to ramp up a word that if you've been in Lakeview for a lot of years, you would know this is a word that probably got more playtime previous. And, and I think it needs some, some greater playtime now. The word discernment. Discernment is when you stare at a group of ideas and you can tell the difference between them. And more importantly, you can tell which ones answer to God and which ones do not. That's discernment. And that's, that's a missing ingredient more and more in our information age that there's ideas everywhere around us and they're being published everywhere and we're overexposed. I love Tim Challey's thought. He wrote a book called The Discipline of Discernment a number of years ago. He says, this is a book about discernment, about the skill of thinking biblically about life. To be more precise, it's a book about particular kind of discernment, spiritual discernment. Discernment is a discipline. And like other disciplines, such as prayer and reading the Bible, it is one that all Christians should seek to practice deliberately. Always deliberately. It is written for all those who believe that, listen, it is the duty of every Christian to think biblically about all areas of life so that they might act biblically in all areas of life. That's what discernment helps us to do. There is a profound lack of discernment in many, many, many social media posts. There are people giving thumbs up and liking things that are confusing for, you know, and, and if, if you're in social media in the same way that the Bible tells, tells us that we will render an account for every word that we speak in this world. Can I just tell you, you're going to render an account for everything you type as well. So, you know, that moment where somebody posted something, that's a really bad idea and you liked it. Why'd you do that? Well, because that's what you do on social media. It's like, you know, you like stuff so that they'll like you back. Stop it. You're confusing everybody. You're confusing young Christians who happen to be tuned into your page, who somebody posted something full of bad ideas, full of ungodly ideas. And you liked it as a representative of Christ. Somebody else knows you're a Christian and you thumbed up that thing. You should have just left it alone. Or somebody posted something that sparked a debate and you jumped into the debate and your idea is as unbiblical as their unbiblical idea is. 
We're not here to, to help the, kick up the sandstorm of bad ideas. We're, we're, we're here for this. And if I don't know this well enough, maybe I could just tune out social media for a while and pick the Bible up and read it a little bit more and get familiar with it so that when I speak, I, I help bring a revelation of God's truth. Now listen, this is, I'm not calling people to be ugly and be obnoxious, but I am calling us to do something that's biblical. To be discerning is biblical. And Jesus interacted with a, a pool of ideas back then. There was no social media. There was no you know, phones and, and the, the volume of information was not the same as it is now. But, you know, Jesus didn't have a problem standing in the midst of a group of people or a crowd and, and, and coming right out and saying, you know, you have heard it said, but I say, remember Jesus saying that? He said it a lot. And when he did that, he set up a contrast and, and he invited people to be discerning, to say, hey, this is what I say with the authority of who I am. I say this, you've heard this. How do these go together? And that's the passage that we're going to interact with today. I, I brought it up a couple of weeks ago just to talk through the storms of life that we sometimes pass through. But I want to bring it up this week on our way into a study of a statement of faith, which is, is a boiling down of the important doctrines of Scripture in these important categories. Right? And that's what we're going to be unpacking this summer. But, but listen to the two categories that Jesus creates that all of us need to discern all around our lives. These two categories exist. He starts in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, right? This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's taught a lot. When he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority not as their scribes. So there, there's a premise being presented in this passage that Jesus is talking about life. He's talking about the way we build our lives, right? This is not a, a directions for building your home. This is directions for building your life. And he says, you know, if you will build your life on the rock, when the storms come, your house will stand, right? It's a premise. It's a promise. And so, you know, all of us who have lived life, who, who know what it is to live life and storms come, they rip up our world. They, they mess things up. <clears throat> Here's a promise from Jesus that if I build on rock, the outcome of my life is going to be different than if I build on sand. But then he, he does something here. He advertises that what's available when you and I go to build our lives. And by the way, we're always building our lives, aren't we? Right? Nobody's taking a day off from that. You're collecting ideas. You're agreeing with stuff. You feel passionate about something. You make time for something. You take a class. You go to a church. You read books. You're doing all that because you're, you're looking for life and you're, and you're looking to build our lives. Every one of us are doing that. But Jesus makes something clear and it's true whether you and I have thought this through or not. 
When you go to build on something, you can build on sand as well. Or you can build on rock. And Jesus points something out here, and Luke picks it up in his language when he shares the same parable in Luke chapter 6. Luke says it this way. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And I love Luke's help and his imagery here because you you have surfacey sand that's available, right? So you find a place that for whatever reason you want to build your life in some category or your whole life and you found a spot to build it on. You looked at it, you found something on the surface to fall in love with, but what you didn't ask the question of was what's underneath the sand? What's holding this thing up? What am I going to find that is solid to build my life on or am I just going to build it on this quick pile of sand that I've come across some ideas, some fresh thoughts, something that wasn't even here 20 years ago that people are now building their lives on as though that's going to sustain you. That's going to put you in a good place down the road. People didn't even do that 20 years ago. They didn't have even heard of that 40 years ago, but now people are building their lives on it. And Jesus said, that's a living category. There's real sand out there. But Jesus has said something. He has revealed something else, and what he has revealed is rock. And he raises this question, and this is a good question for us in our modern version of casual Christianity, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? There's something about that that concept, that title, right? That word Lord, it's a title. Jesus said, you know, to really be Lord is, is to function as the authority in your life. It was a word in the Greek that described the owner of something. Why do you call me the owner, but you don't do what I say? Why do you call me the master, but you don't do what I say? Which means you do something different. Where'd you get that other something different? Well, you know, I grew up a certain way. And in my household and in my family, we always did this. We didn't do that. Okay. You know, when I got to high school, you know, there was just a group of people that were really important to me. I wanted to fit in. I, I, I didn't want to be ostracized. I didn't want it to be weird. So, you know, I just found myself doing what they said. You know, I went to this church and, you know, I, I'm not sure that I ever cross-examined what they believed to see if it came from the Bible. It's just what we did. It's just how we did it. So, you know, Okay. Well, you know, my personality, my temperament is this. I've always felt this way about that topic, or I feel this way about me. And so therefore I do this rather than doing that. You understand all those are voices different than Jesus. That Jesus could come to you or me today and say, why do you, why do you call me Lord? But you don't do what I say. You do what you say. You do what that group says. You do what that post said. And so Jesus raises a real live question. Our relationship with him becomes real when it becomes the thing that wins us. When it is influencing what we do. When we believe something and we really believe it, we do it. If you won't do it, you don't really believe it. And that's what Jesus is pulling on here. It's like there are ideas that we believe. Some of them are just these sandy, out of surface kind of ideas. Jesus says, do not build your house there. 
dig down deep and set your house on rock. Now, I want, I want to highlight a couple of things as we look at the sand here, the, the world that we live in. There are, there are some sandy ideas available to us in a lot of categories, right? I'm just going to pick a couple of the ones that are kind of noisy these days and, and just travel through these sands of time just for a moment and, and illustrate a point. When we come to these topics or when we come to any topic, do we look for the rock first to build our thoughts from? Or do we just borrow the sand that's available? All right, so let me pick a category. The first one is gender. Societies that have existed past time frames of our own culture and society have had ideas about gender, right? We're not the first culture to have some ideas about gender, right? So there have been historic patriarchal societies that have defined the roles of men and women a certain way because of that culture's thoughts about what makes a man a man, what makes a woman a woman, and, and you'll find that in their storyline, right? There have been changes in our own lifetime. Feminism came on the scene in a powerful way in the 60s and 70s. Feminism stared at the topic of the roles of men and women and raised all kinds of questions and said, no, not that, this. That's not right. This is right. This is the way this should be done. And the sand shifted. And the ideas about what makes a man a man and a woman a woman began to shift. And then more recently in our, in our lifetime, LGBTQ plus voices have been heard. And they are, there's a giant platform being made for these voices. And they're presenting ideas about gender. And they're having a different conversation with some previous conclusions that people had made about gender. And raising questions that those aren't the right conclusions. You should be thinking this way about that and not that way. Now, let me just say it because I'm going to jump into race in just a second here. These are sensitive issues for people. Right? For some people, they're not. But for some people in this room, there would be some people who, who struggle with some issues, whether it's roles of men and women, whether it's, it's gender identity. There could be people here today in your small group who struggle in that category. And I don't want to present this topic as though shame on you to where you can't find the body of Christ to be a place where people help you and love you and walk with you through those difficulties. But there is a need for all of us to pick our Bibles up, be informed, and then stare out at these topics. Okay, so that, that doesn't mean we become insensitive and uncaring. There are people with racial issues that I'll bring up next. Their racial experience has not been yours, and it's affected them, and they're in a different place than you are. But here is the biggest problem in this category. If you pick up the emotion and the personal experience of an LGBTQ member or of a person who has been discriminated against and hurt. If you pick the emotion and the experience up and you build your doctrine out of that, you have made a radical mistake. You don't ever build doctrine out of anything but this. You don't build it out of your personality. You don't build it out of the way you were raised. You don't build it out of your church's tradition. You don't build it out of your emotions. You don't build it out of somebody did that really bad over there in that church. So we'll never do that here. Wait, wait you didn't get that from the Bible. Well, that was a really bad experience. And I'm never going to be around a person like that. All right, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a real experience. Let's see if we can navigate that. Let's see if we can walk with each other in love and care for one another. Because you, you've really been hurt by that. 
But you don't rewrite doctrine because experience was out of line. We rewrite doctrine only based on the scriptures. So in this category, gender has shifted radically, right? Carl Truman's written an interesting book this year titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. He kind of studies this category of thought in the last 60 years, and he writes this. He says, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. And here's a statement, quote, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. That sentence carries with it a world of metaphysical assumptions. It touches on the connection between the mind and the body, given the priority it grants to inner conviction over biological reality. It separates gender from sex, given it drives a wedge between chromosomes and how society defines being a man or a woman. At the heart of this book lies a basic conviction, the so-called sexual revolution of the last 60 years, culminating in its latest triumph, the normalization of transgenderism, cannot be properly understood until it is set within the context of a much broader transformation in how society understands the nature of human selfhood. Right, so there is this sand at the surface and it's shifted drastically in the last five to 10 years in this category. And there are new ideas being offered to folks to think about building their life in the category of gender. I saw, I mean, this is, this is resulting in some radical impacts on people's lives. I saw a 60 Minutes program a couple of weeks ago um, of people who begin to have some doubts on the inside. And this is not a criticism of those doubts, right? All of us have doubts about all kinds of things that we have to navigate through this broken world and figure out. But there are folks who've had gender doubts. And in that moment, they have sought out voices in the gender identity world, which quickly affirmed their inner convictions and started them down a road of transgender progress. And before they knew it, they were agreeing to all kinds of physical changes and, and standing in line with that and making those decisions about their life. They were building their life only to get two or three years down the road further and to doubt what started them down that road and whether or not they should have ever proceeded in that direction. Right? That, that doubt was being birthed out of their own set of inner convictions that they were doubting whether they'd made a previous right choice. But, but what if God has revealed rock to us that when it comes to you building your gender, you could build it on something solid, something more solid than my feelings. Feelings are strong, right? But I mean, all of us have lived long enough. enough. My, my feelings can get out of whack sometimes. They get out of bounds. They can get confused. Right? so that can happen here as well. And here you have, Carl Truman's not even talking about biblical categories yet. There's a metaphysical disconnect. There's a biological disconnect in this category. There's a chromosomal disconnect in this category. 
but my feelings are being elevated. The sand of my feelings is what I'm now going to build my life on in this category. But does God have anything to say in this category? Right, when you and I go to have a conversation or to, feel, or, or to feel our way through, hey, is that right? Is this person really right in what they're saying? Right, so under these categories, I just threw a couple of questions in, in each one of these. Uh, what's my starting place for building my understanding of gender? Am I building with the easy-to-find ideas on the surface of the human story in this particular time and location? That would be I'm building with sand then on sand. Or am I digging deep to find the rock of revelation that comes from the creator himself about the house of gender that he created? Well, where would I find that? In here. You would find a doctrine of creation in here. You would find a doctrine of the nature of God in here. You would find the God who created man in his image, male and female. So I would find revelation that there was an intentionality of God before sin and before confusion and before the sandstorm kicked up that was set in a place that was immovable. God did this in eternity past, well, in creation. And now we live as created beings in light of that, right? So if I put this as my rock, I will build my gender house out of that rock. What about race? Race is a very popular issue today, very impacting our culture today. If you go back through history, racial issues are scattered throughout history. They're not new issues. The ancient Egyptians had ideas about race. That's why they, you got to read about them because they, they kind of overthrew everybody else. There was a superiority that they saw in themselves that they subjugated others to. The Romans did the same thing. The British colonized the world. A lot of us are descended from European background. At some point, uh, white Europeans colonized the world. And they saw race a certain way. And they came to locations with ideas about themselves and about the people who were there before them. And that didn't always pan out real well because they had racial ideas. The Nazis had ideas about race, right? What drove the Nazi party and uh, Germany's efforts to subjugate the world was their views on the Aryan race. And that's not always crazy headlines, right? If you're a white suburbanite, you grew up around ideas of race. You won't escape that. That's in your mind. That's in your thinking. Some of your default settings, they're there. They're ideas that you're around. The organization known as Black Lives Matters has ideas in its platform of what drives it to do and say what it does and what it says. So there are racial ideas all around us and they are shifting sand in our day and they are going back and forth between this post and that person and, and this perspective and that perspective and how to think about that and that group versus how you think about that and that group and how to think about somebody of this color who came from this background, who's been exposed to that thing. And, and you are being presented with ideas that are telling you how to feel about yourself and how to feel about others. Are these ideas you're going to build your life on? All right. Can I just make everybody mad at me right now? Um, White suburban neighborhoods are filled with sand. And Black Lives Matter 
is filled with sand. Is everybody mad at me now? They're, they're ideas in these settings. And when you bump into them, your obligation isn't to fire your set of ideas back at their set of ideas. And then they'll return fire and then you'll return fire and we'll just have a sandstorm when we're done. Right? The goal of what I want to accomplish today with us is to recognize as the people of God, there is a rock of revelation that God has brought that we are obligated to. As a Christian, I am an ambassador to speak on behalf of God. So when it comes to these issues, I need to discern, is that sand? Did that guy just say a sand comment? Is that a sand comment? Is he inviting me to build my house on sand right now? If I agree with him, because that's what you do when you agree, right? That guy's saying, hey, you want to build your race house right? You build it right here, buddy. Let me give you a plot of land. Come on over. And that's the invitation that you just got through a tweet. And you're going to have to decide whether you want to thumb up that tweet or thumb it down or what you're going to do with it. Well, that's inviting you perhaps to build your view, your life on sand. Do you look for the sand? Do you look at ideas and say, that's, oh, that's a pretty sandy idea right there. That's not going to stand the test of time. That doesn't line up with the scriptures the way I know it's supposed to. Right? Th- this is who we're supposed to be. Right? How about basic ideas of right and wrong? In our day, there are ideas about what's right and what's wrong. I remember getting to the place where this term postmodern was becoming more familiar and relativism showed up with being postmodern. So there were these relative ideas and everything became more and more relative, right? We were unbolting absolutes, right? My parents grew up with absolutes. There was right and wrong when they were kids. And there was right and wrong when I was a kid. But then I got in my teenage years, 20s and into the 30s and All of a sudden, right and wrong became relative terms. And what was right for me might not be right for you. And all of a sudden, we had this whole new thing we were exploring together. And that's that's changed even more. I had a conversation with a teacher in the church who is wrestling through, you know, what what does a career in teaching look like when organizations are requiring, and this is a real story, and I bumped into this dealing with Rancho 3M a number of years ago. Organizations are requiring that a teacher set up an environment with classrooms where one of the instruction points that you introduce to the children is, okay, kids, there are no right and wrong answers. Listen, I have an engineering background. Uh, There's a lot of right and wrong answers. Can I just tell you, every bridge you drove over, there was a wrong way to build that thing on the way here today. And so if somebody said... I think two works as good as two million right here. Well, yeah, well then when you drive over that bridge, you're going down. There is right and wrong, but you're going you're gonna to create an environment today because there's something damaging being done to the human psyche when they're told they're wrong. And so we're going to create an environment where teachers no longer feature right and wrong. She said that they were requiring you to have a position that presents to these kids that truth is fluid. Now, these are organizations who are creating an environment for teaching and learning to take place. Um, do I go with that idea? Do I buy into that? When, when you start having a conversation with somebody who sounds like you have too much of an opinion you're requiring everybody else to have, and they respond to that with this sense of deep irritation that, you know, how obnoxious of you to think everybody's got to think that way about that is... Is that a sand conversation or is that a rock conversation? All right. So when I come to 
statements of faith that, that show me theology in a sound way? What's my starting place for building my understanding of right and wrong? If I dig deep, I can find the rock of revelation of what the creator had in mind when he created boundaries with consequences. Right? It's God who inflicts the boundaries on humanity and says there is right and there is wrong. And I'm going to make it really easy for you. Everything else here is right except that one thing right there. That's wrong. And what do you know man did? He went and ate from the wrong thing. Right? And he inflicted the consequences of that wrong on everyone. But where, where do I get the idea that, that might there be some right and wrong in life today? Well... I get it from the Bible, right? In, in this one, you can go to Statement of Faith, page 11 and page 15 and find some real great help in understanding that truth. Let me give you one more category. And, and it's a category of, of the word liberty. You know, we're a nation with a love for liberty. But when I throw that word out at you, right? Um, is that a sandy word or is that a rock word? Well, it depends on whether you bring the Bible with you into your conversation about the concept of liberty. What does liberty mean that we love liberty so much? Well, interesting that last month I came across this thought from President Biden. It was reported by CNN. It says, this nation, President Biden said, was built on an idea. The only nation in the world built on an idea. I'm not sure why they let him say some of these things. Every nation is built on ideas. Every other nation is built on ethnicity, geography, religion. Well, religion's tons of ideas, etc. We were built on an idea, the idea of liberty and opportunity for all. Is that, is, is that your definition for liberty? Is that how you understand liberty? An opportunity for all. All, right? I'm not going to unpack how complicated that would be when all don't share the same interest and don't share the same definitions for a lot of things. But, but that is what it feels like, right? Liberty is being presented to this idea that liberty is about empowering every individual to do whatever that individual wants to do with their life. It's an opportunity for them. That's what liberty is. But when I come to the Bible, the Bible handles that word differently. There's a rock of liberty that's in the Bible that feels very, very different. Very, very different, right? And I'm going to take you a long way to get there, but Tim Keller brings this thought in his latest book, Hope in Times of Fear. He says this, how do the cross and resurrection bring the moral guidance of the Bible into sharp focus? First, the great reversal, which he calls the death, burial, and resurrection, that reversal, that great reversal helps us see obedience to moral rules in a gospel light, not as a means to save ourselves, not as a means to save ourselves, right? This Bible is filled with principles, Moral actions, descriptions of boundaries, defining of right and wrong. If you pick it up and you do what he just described here, you will have misused the Bible because it is not given to us as a means to save ourselves, is it? That's what political platforms propose. 
a group of people get together and found a dozen or two dozen ideas around which they form their platform. And they basically say, the world is messed up, but we can save you from that if you'll just start doing it this way. Here's our collection of ideas. If you'll be moral this way and stop doing this and pay taxes that fund that, that fix that. It's all about human effort with human ideas and human strength to reform a broken world. And you can do that with the Bible. And if you have, you have misused the Bible. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel never comes into the brokenness of humanity and jacks up humanity with a fresh set of ideas. Hey guys, just need a pep talk. You just need some better ideas. I know you've had this party's ideas. How about this party's ideas? I know that group over there, they've hurt you for years. How about this group of ideas? Can I just tell you that's a sandstorm? It's one human idea blowing against another human idea that you're being asked to set your life on. But as Christians, we should have an allergic response to that. Because the last thing in the world we're here to do, because we don't believe it, is to invite humanity to reform itself by its own power. It's the last thing we're here for. Why wouldn't I do that? Because I know better. There's a section in here about God creating man and the impact of sin. There's a whole section in here on that. So when I see how sin has impacted us, I know I can't invite you to self-fix. Sin will never allow that. You don't have the power and I don't have the power to do that. So when the gospel gets reduced to some idea to psych you up and get you to be a better person, I've misused the gospel. And this idea of liberty, listen to where he goes with this. Very different sort of set of ideas. He says... This is not a means to save ourselves, but as a way to imitate, delight, and resemble the one who saved us through his death and resurrection. We come to see, for example, that every act of obedience, this is what Jesus was doing, right? To God is a death followed by a resurrection. Elizabeth Elliot wrote that whenever two wills cross, somebody has to die. Life requires countless little deaths. Occasions when we are given the chance to say no to self and yes to God. Whoa, that sounds like a different definition for liberty. Because the liberty that this nation was built on gave everybody the opportunity. And if you give me the opportunity, I'd like to do what I'd like to do. And I'd like all the laws in the land to reflect that. And I'd like you to get in line with it. And I would like God to get in line with it as well. But that's not the liberty the Bible describes. He says, she meant that every time we obey God and give up the right to self-determination, we are dying to control over our own life. Isn't that what liberty means today? It's empowering people to not be controlled by anybody else. That's what liberty means in our world today. But she adds, we are not meant to die merely in order to be dead. God would not want that. We die in order to live. Listen to this. He goes on and says, many people would say that the principle of love is the main ethical directive for Christians. Others would say that liberation is the basic moral theme of the Bible. But the problems are similar. In popular parlance, which means in sand speak, liberation now has an almost completely political meaning. And those who appeal to the Bible in their efforts to liberate people 
from various political injustices often lose touch with the New Testament's emphasis on, listen, the power of God as the sole ground of hope and freedom. The power of God as our only hope that we could ever truly experience freedom. Not a platform, not a politic, not a new law, not a different president, not those issues, not racial harmony. Those are not the things. The power of God is necessary for us to experience freedom. And listen though, he says secular conservatism fights for the liberation of the individual from state power. Right? That's what, when, I, when I want to talk freedom, I want to talk about government overstep and the ridiculous laws that have been created during COVID that makes people wear masks. That's what I want to talk about. I want that kind of freedom. All right, you can use that word that way if you want, but you're just in a sandstorm. Because you're not talking about the kind of freedom the Bible's talking about. But you are talking about American freedom. While progressivism, right on the other side of the aisle, fights for the liberation of oppressed groups through state power. So one group wants smaller government, wants them to back off, wants them to go away. The other group wants larger government so that they can force the other people who misbehave to treat the other people right. The common ground for both of those is you don't need the power of God for either. So this is a freedom that doesn't require the power of God. Not exactly the freedom we're after, is it? It's easy for Christians who talk about liberation to be more influenced by one of those political views than by the Bible. Liberation, understood in light of the great reversal, looks very different from their ideology. Very different. Do you remember how Jesus invites people into relating with him. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him abandon his own self project, give up his rights to do things the way he wants them to do and surrender his will to me from now on. And that made perfect sense to Jesus. He told parables, right? The guy who comes across his field and he finds a treasure hidden in the field and the treasure in that field is so much more valuable to him than anything else. Immediately he goes and he sells everything he owns to buy the field so he could have that treasure, right? That's an illustration of the kingdom. We do realize what that guy just did, didn't he? He sold out his whole life. His businesses, all of his property, his reputation, the stuff he owned. He was a big mover and shaker with a big company and all these people working for him. Whatever he had, he sold that. He denied himself in order to have something that was greater to him. Jesus said, you know, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. Isn't this what the Bible sounds like? See, so when it comes to this topic of freedom, when you and I hear the the sandstorm of freedom being exchanged in social media, are we talking about the same liberty and freedom as the Bible is talking about? My questions in this category would be, what is my starting place for building my understanding of liberty? Where do I start with that? If I dig deep, I can find the rock of revelation about the doctrine of sin and Satan in this department, about the authority and the reign of Christ 
in the category of freedom and liberty, about the power of the Holy Spirit, right? I can find those things in the Bible, and they're all relevant to freedom and liberty, right? You and I know this. Not sure we always sound this way, but we know this from the scriptures. What is the biggest thing that you need freedom from? That group over there with a different set of ideas, right? Who's going to going to wreck our whole world. Once they put these things in place, we need freedom from that. We need freedom from that racial issue. We need freedom from that thing over. This is, this is what it sounds like, right? But the priority of freedom is in those categories. But when I read my Bible, you know what I need freedom from? Me. Remember Paul describing an awareness that sin Stinking sin dwells in my members. And the thing I want to do, I can't seem to do it. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Paul, who's the biggest problem in your world? Me. Why is it that you and I are so convinced that the the people around us are the ones messing up our freedom? I live with people who mess my freedom up. I have neighbors who mess my freedom up. I go to church with people who mess my freedom up. I mean, right? Everybody's messing my freedom up. But yet the Bible makes a little bit of noise about that. Doesn't deny the fact that, hey, people can be messy and they cause harm and they hurt us. But when the Bible gets down to the issue of liberty, it tells me I need to be freed from sin and its power over me. And that does something for my doctrine, doesn't it? That informs what I believe about Jesus Christ and him being a savior. Because there's nothing else in this world that can set me free from that. There's no other power in the world. There's nothing. There's nothing that's being exchanged in the social media world today that's going to set me free from the power of sin and Satan in this world. There's only one. And I will need the Bible to point me to him. So when I read a tweet, a book, a blog, or hear a podcast or a news commentary, one, do I discern the sand that I'm hearing? You're offering me to build my view, my opinion, my passion. You want me to thumb up? Can I just ask some of you guys to stop thumbing up some of the things you're thumbing up? I understand. I think there's like a peer pressure problem with that, right? If you don't like them, they won't like you back. Is that kind of what makes that happen? Because people post things that are really, really sandy, They're really bad ideas. And sometimes they're just downright ungodly. And Christians in the church that are sitting with you, that worshiped a few minutes ago and lifted their hands to God are going, why are you doing that? Can you take a little pile of sand and stick that there instead? You know, that's a sandy idea. That's a sandy idea that I hope you're not building your life on and nobody else should be building your life on. But do you discern that? You hear arguments and debates and criticalness and all these things that are so important. Do you discern, is that sand or is that built on the rock? Because that's what we're called to discern, right? Jesus is building something called the church and he's building it on rock, right? But watch where this comes from, right? In this passage is the last thing we'll look at. Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus... Verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? 
And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets, right? Jesus is testing the news headlines, right? He's in the headlines and he's in the headlines a lot. He's going from place to place because he's a social reformer. He's going to show up. He's going to make our world right. Well, who do they think I am? That's going to do that for them. What do they say about me? This is like, hey, what's trending? And it's trending in categories. We've heard people pay attention to these things is because it trends in categories that, that, that mess with categories that matter to us, like, like love and freedom and fulfillment and identity. And these are things that matter to us. So, so what's Jesus going to do for me in these categories? Well, Jesus says, well, who do they say I am? I'm just curious. Who do they think could help them? What would that savior be like? Well, you know, they're kind of 0 for 4 here, right? John the Baptist can't save them. Elijah can't save them. Jeremiah can't save them. None of the prophets can save him. He said to them, but, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you guys say that I am? All right, this is a theological question in this moment. All right, can I say, this is the kind of stuff you find in little books like this. For those of you who want to be nerdy in doctrinal land, this is Christology. This is what you believe about Christ. See, before you, you and I even have this conversation about an issue in the world, what does the Bible say about the Christ? What does it teach about a savior? What was he coming to do? See, because if you get your Christology right, then you get the nature of humanity right. You get the nature of God right. You can explain salvation accurately. Right? But if you get Jesus wrong, you get all those wrong. Right? Um, the atheism of communism you know, doesn't believe in a God, doesn't need a God, etc. It inherently believes that man is good. And so if you just teach man to behave right, you'll get a good version of man. That's communism. Anybody show me a communist nation where that's worked out well? It hasn't worked out well. So who is Jesus in that moment? Well, maybe a good teacher, somebody to come teach us some new principles, kind of interact with some things. Maybe, maybe Jesus would be like a good guest on Oprah Winfrey. Maybe he could do an awesome TED Talk on motivational speaking. On, you know, here's what people need. Uh, maybe, maybe Jesus is like Gandhi, right? Just get, deeply cares about people, come with some fresh ideas. Maybe he's like Martin Luther King Jr. He's going to help with civil rights. That's why Jesus is here. You understand all those answers put Jesus into a non-Christological view. And when you misunderstand who Jesus is, you misunderstand everything else. So when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Boom. Right. For the Christ wasn't last name. Right. We all know that, that Jesus wasn't Christ like last name. His dad was, you know, Joseph Christ and he was Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> Christ is a title. Christ is a description from the Old Testament. It means the anointed one. So Peter was saying, you're the one that we've been waiting for. The one who can fix it. The one who can make it right. You're that one. And all that that means, that's what he recognized. But I love what Jesus does in this moment. That perked up Jesus' ears in a crazy way. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and that this rock he was referring to was that revelation that he had about the Christ. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, it's the same illustration, right? He is the Christ, not built on sand and sandy ideas about what humanity thinks it needs to fix itself. He is the rock upon which salvation is based. And there's not a storm that's going to come that's going to tear that house down. That house is going to withstand the storms of hell because it's built on the rock. How did Peter know that? Read it in a tweet? Had a conversation with a really smart guy? Jesus didn't say that's where you got that from. He said, Peter, I can tell my father was here. Because you couldn't have got that anywhere else but from him. You couldn't have known that in and of yourself. The father had to show that to you and give that to you. Now, now, does this do something to you? Does, Does this help you and me understand that there are things that must be revealed to us by God? And you can hang with the crowds and you can play in the sand and never see some of this stuff. Rock in the Bible is the revelation that the gracious God gives to stubborn, rebellious humanity. And somehow it sticks to us when he gives it. Which is why Paul prayed a certain way, right? You see this prayer in the, in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, he says, do not, I do not, Paul said, for believers, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know something. How did you come to understand this? Well, the father gave you the knowledge of him. He enlightened your hearts. That's the rock. It is the thing that God must reveal to us that is immovable. It doesn't change over time. It is settled by God. It is eternal truth and it will not shift and become a different set of ideas five years from now or 25 years from now. It is God's revelation that is settled. And you and I need to build our lives on that rock. So we we need to be able to see these doctrines and truths in the scriptures. And it's very tempting, very easy to to take these words and to, to set them on sand. Words like liberty and freedom. How about words like peace? Is there anybody in this room who's like, I don't want any peace. If you had peace, I wouldn't take it from you. We want peace, don't we? I mean, in in a big way, we want peace in our lives. Uh, Did you know that there's a sandy version of peace? And there's a rock version of peace? The sandy one is like a house built on sand. It'll be safe until the storm shows up. And then that peace is going away. It's going to get wrecked. 
But the deceptive thing about it is, as long as the breeze is blowing decent and the sun is shining, that piece feels like it's working. But Jesus is smart enough to tell us, do not leave your peace house right there because that sand is about to shift and your house is going to come falling down. Now listen to this thought from Andy Farmer wrote a book called Real Peace, contrasting with the false peace that's available in this world. He said, we should consider the objective peace with God that comes with reconciliation to him and the experiential peace that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as different but inseparable manifestations of peace. Now listen to this. Any peace a person has apart from reconciliation with God through the atoning death of Jesus Christ is false, damning peace. Do you agree with that? Any peace that you can come up with that doesn't need the power of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did on your behalf, any peace is damning peace. It's deceiving us into a false sense of peace. We're really not at peace. And why is that? Because when Jesus gives this illustration about the storm that's coming, the ultimate storm that he knows every human being is going to face is not the storm of isn't life hard on earth? Doesn't your body wear out? Isn't suffering difficult? The ultimate storm Jesus knows every one of us will face as human beings is the judgment seat of God. That it is appointed unto men to die once and then the judgment of God. And in that moment, whatever peace we found in this world, we got along with people. They all thought we were funny. We had a big bank account. We could pay for the things that we needed. In that moment, our house is coming down. And Jesus knew ultimately that storm is the tester for how we survive this life. So here's what I want us to, to be in touch with. And so we navigate through this study, right? We're going to travel through half of this little booklet together and, and study these doctrines that form the rock upon which we believe things. They are the things that when the sand starts to shift and blow and we come across sandy ideas, before we start to build our agreement with that, we go back to the rock and we say, wait, wait, what does the rock say? What has God revealed first? Let me, let me make that answer to this and not the other way around. We are not here to say, you know what? Uh, the world is painting a picture of a mean God who doesn't love and he's not like this. And, and now I'm going to change my view of God. That's upside down. That's building our life on sand. God has revealed himself to us in his word more clearly than anywhere else. We need that rock of revelation in our lives. And so this is what our summer is about. It's about treasuring the revelation of God specifically revealed in the doctrines of scripture. That when we go to do life in the sandstorm world that we're living in, we have a rock to attach our lives to. So can we, can we stand up together and pray about that? This venture that we're going to go on as a church, let's just invite God into that category with us. Lord, in this
information age in which we live, it, it feels like life has been relocated to the beach. There's a lot of sand everywhere, sand everywhere. And it's very tempting, Lord, to take these ideas and these beliefs that some people are really convinced about. They feel really passionate about them. They're defining our humanity. They're defining our views of you, of ultimate things. Lord, it's very tempting to just start building with what we're hearing. But yet, Lord, you have invited us to not do that, to discern that there's sand on the surface. But if you'll dig deep, there is truth that is unchanging. So, Father, I pray for all of us. I pray for each and every one of us, whether we're watching a live stream, whether we're here gathered today. Lord, Lord, would you put in our hands a shovel? Or maybe we've been doing life, living fast, engaging ideas, but Lord, we're, we're doing it without a shovel. God, put a shovel in our hands. The first thing that we do when we encounter something that's drawing us to build our life there, that we break that shovel out and we dig down deep to find what you have said, to find how you have revealed yourself, what you have created, what your authority speaks into this moment. Gotta pray for our ability to discern sand. To not just take the quick surface, flat area that looks like it could support a house and start building our lives there. God teaches us to do that from an early age. God, I pray for our vacation Bible school this week. God, our gathering of the next generation of our children, who if there's any generation that needs to be discerning, oh Lord, it will be them. God, we pray that this week gathered around your word and in your presence would bring them to a place of revelation about you, Lord. That everything else has got to bounce off that. That they're able to stare out at life, stare out at humanity, and know when that does or does not sound like my heavenly father. God, would you do such a work in our children this week? Would you awaken their hearts, Lord, the way you awaken Peter's heart? Lord, that in the noise of other people, he could discern something you had said to him. Lord, make that so for our kids. That in the noise of their friendships and the noise of things they're seeing around them, they can discern something from their father that reveals to them the Christ in all of his glory, saving us from all that we need to be liberated from, understanding the mission that you were on, humbling us, making us aware of our desperate need for you all, Lord, what a gift you would give to our children this week if you will show up that way as they're gathered. I pray that, Lord. I pray that for the, the workers that are going to be here, our teachers that are here and those uh, acting in dramas and skits and doing music for our kids this week. Lord, God, God, thank you for how many volunteers we have. Lord, amazing number of folks that are eager to serve our children this week. God, would you fill them in this way, Lord, with a revelation of yourself that they bring the rock to our kids, Lord. Our kids don't need any more sand, Lord. Living in a sandbox. God, would you give them the rock this week? Rocks of revelation about you in our midst, Lord. 
God, I pray for every person here gathered this morning or watching by live stream who would consider themselves non-readers or non-studiers. Lord, that's like a bad recipe for settling for sand because non-readers and non-studiers don't have shovels. And they don't see deeper things. So Lord, I pray, and I pray specifically against that, that every person in this room, every person watching by live stream who would consider themselves a non-studier, that they would put an end to that. That the days of their future life would be about digging deep to know God and have him reveal through his word. God, that the things that you have tucked away in scripture that are meant to inform our lives, to awaken us to you, to protect us and keep us from the evil one. Lord, you would expose our hearts and our lives to your truth tucked away in your word and you would reveal it to us. Lord, lastly, I want to I pray for everyone who is on social media. God, the world feels like a sandstorm blowing sandy ideas back and forth and back and forth. But Lord, you have given us rock to build our lives on. Lord, would you teach us how to discern whether we're posting something, responding to something, applauding something, forwarding something. God, would you teach us to see sand and not to invite people to build on sand? Lord, it's not helping folks. Lord, you made us part of a community, a body together. Lord, we look at one another to figure this thing out. God, would you help us not to confuse each other by supporting and promoting sandy ideas? that have displaced the rock of your revelation. God, make us revealers of the rock. Make us to be those who dig deep and have something to share with others that's solid. And if they build their houses there, they won't regret it. They will stand the storms of this life. So Father, in this coming weeks, Lord, as we study doctrine together, oh God, give us solid foundations upon which we build everything about our lives, everything about our lives, and make us discerners of sand and rock in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.